Hello, and welcome to episode three. I'm Bill Deloise, your host for the Wiley Society Updates podcast, where we're exploring some of the important trends shaping the world of research communications. In this episode, we're talking about open science. Now, some people use the term open science to mean open access, but open access is just one part of a growing movement among researchers, funders, and publishers to make research discovery faster and more efficient. Remember GitHub, the online collaboration space for the programming community that Todd Toller described in our last episode? In many ways, GitHub is a model for the new, more open methods of research practice and communication that have come to be described more generally as open science. You also might remember that GitHub has 14 million users worldwide, and that the fastest growing group of users is scientific researchers. We're going to pick up the story of open science with Liz Ferguson, Wiley's Vice President of Publishing Development. Liz spoke at the Wiley Society Executive Seminar in London in April of 2016. Before we go to Liz, you should know that she uses the terms open research and open science fairly interchangeably, but they refer to the same movement and set of values. Here's Liz reviewing the main drivers of the open science movement. So researchers, it's a small number, but it's a growing number, and it's particularly prominent among early career researchers, are as keen as they can be to get more of the outputs of their work out into the public domain. This is partly so that in a very competitive environment, they can highlight the full range of activities that they're undertaking and the full value that they bring to the research process. But there is also this increasing recognition that making your work more publicly available, making yourself more publicly available, leads to increased opportunities for collaboration and that those collaborations may come from unexpected directions. Those unexpected directions wouldn't have made themselves apparent had you not put your work out there in a more open environment. Funders, of course, are looking for increased return on investment and on every single grant that they give and all the other investments they make. And governments are looking for real spurs in innovation and much greater and faster economic benefits to arise from the research that they're funding at large scale. Let's pause here for a second, because that's pretty big. What Liz is saying is that the people who produce research and the people who fund that research both have really strong incentives to make research more accessible than it's ever been before. But those aren't the only factors. Here's Liz again. It also seems right now, and it's probably true, that everyone is talking about reproducibility. Now, reproducibility is a bit of a buzzword or can become used as one. It kind of implies for many minds a a holy grail or a deal of perfection or detail that's just unattainable for the average human being or even for the average postdoc researcher. What it really means in reality is not necessarily that the work has been replicated or that even that it can be replicated, but that the data that underpins the work has been made publicly available, that the code used to analyze those data are also available. Importantly, that both of those things are well documented and there are big gaps in that kind of documentation and standards around it right now. And also that the means of distribution are commonly understood and preferably framed against, again, a background of open standards. So to put this another way, open science isn't just about making an article more available by publishing it in an open access journal. To make research itself more reproducible, to appropriately credit researchers for their work, and to help funders make wise investments, the research community is in the midst of a whole host of changes. Open science means making data, code, 
ways to collaborate, and even researcher recognition more transparent and accessible. Now, governments are playing a big role in all of this. As funders, they have an important stake in making publicly supported research available to the people who helped pay for it, and funder policies around the world are encouraging more open models of research communication. But exactly how open things are depends a lot on where you live. Let's go back to Liz as she talks about how governments around the world are incentivizing more open access and open data. And if your open access knowledge is a little rusty, just remember that green OA means self-archiving and gold OA means pay to publish. So I'm going to start where life is relatively simple in Asia Pacific and everything is relative right now in, in open research and the policies around what's going on. So Australia in particular is pretty helpful. Um, there's a couple of green mandates from major funders in Australia. They are helpfully very alike one another. Um, we will see later that that isn't always the case. So they have common embargo periods and so on. What Australia has done a really nice job of is investing in data through the Australian National Data Service, um, which is based out of Monash University and it's funded by the Australian government. And it's a particularly nice example because it doesn't just provide the infrastructure and the environment in which researchers can easily share and manage and reuse data, but they also provide some really excellent training and guidelines, both for researchers who are really pretty experienced at this and want to go to the next level, and for those who may be undertaking some kind of data work in that sort of environment for the first time. If we look to Japan, we're seeing a green environment again there. There was a, a 2011 to 2015 strategic plan in Japan for open access, which put the onus very much on the development of institutional repositories. And that plan also included support for uh, developing a common infrastructure from which institutions can build. It's been very successful from that perspective. There are now more than 500 institutional repositories across Japan, and that ranks them third in the world uh, by number, at least of repositories behind only the US and the UK. Now, there are some pockets of gold activity. It's not very much. Um, and that's largely come about through the efforts of the JSPS, or the Jap Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science. Now, they will fund individual APCs at the author level, but they are also helping societies transition their journals from subscription to full gold open access where those societies wish to do so. They're not doing it with many journals a year, but what that is doing is stimulating quite a lot more interest from societies in Japan, those that we partner with and others, to think about whether they can sustain for a transitional period their journal as a full gold open access journal. And over the last 10 years, we've seen growth, uh, pretty substantial growth from Japan in open access. Their open access output now is getting close to 10% of their overall research output in, any, in a given year. Now, China, of course, is where everyone is seeing the fastest growth in research output, and they have aspirations to make that research have greater and greater impact and quality and so on. If China were to make a significant move in this kind of space, it would be a total game changer. But so far, they're not. Um, it's a very mixed picture in China right now. There seems to be a, a kind of slightly stronger preference for green. Um, there's about 100, I think, institutional repositories in the Chinese Academy of Sciences network. Um, compliance is extremely low, and that's totally in common with the experiences that we have here. 
if you rely on an individual researcher to deposit manuscripts or some other form of their papers in an institutional repository, it doesn't happen very easily and it doesn't happen at scale. So the repositories that have been successful are those where the librarians are intervening and making sure that either researchers are doing what they need to do or that somehow they're getting hold of copies of that particular material. There is some gold activity in China, um, and that's because researchers are able to use funds from their research grants to pay for gold open access. So to recap, Australia's policies mostly encourage green OA, and they're investing in open data as well. Japan is also mostly green OA, has lots of institutional repositories, and some pockets of gold OA activity, mostly driven by the Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science. China, on the other hand, is a pretty mixed environment of green and gold OA, and it's hard to predict how open access and open data there will evolve. Now, let's hear about what's happening in the United States. The US has committed itself to green open access through most of the major funding agencies. Again, there are resources for pockets of gold, so the University of California system, for example, maintains funds that their researchers can call upon. And the major infrastructure that supports that commitment to green in the US has been developed by publishers in partnership with Crossref. And that's the Clearinghouse for Research US, or CORUS, um, which many of you will have heard about. Um, Wiley was one of the founding partners in that. And what CORUS does is when an author submits an article to a participating journal and identifies their funder, it's matched against a Crossref registry and the article is tagged. And then the... Um, Chorus makes available the appropriate version of that article, depending on the policy of the journal. It could be the final version, accepted version, submitted version, subject to um, an appropriate embargo, and also provides a link through to the final published version of the article on the publisher's website. Now, where the US is making great strides is in the space of open data, and particularly within NIH. So NIH alone has spent $1.2 billion in 10 years on data repositories, and that level of investment is being sustained. Uh, there are a couple of major initiatives ongoing right now. One is around uh, the Big Data to Knowledge Program, or BD2K. And what that seeks to do is address the challenges and opportunities that big data present in biomedical sciences. Now, this typically is not something that can be handled within a normal grant structure. So BD2K seeks out specialist centers who have real expertise in this space to develop new approaches, new models, new tools, techniques, training, and guidance to make the very most of the opportunities that big data presents in that space. The second good example here from the US is another NIH project called the Data Commons, which is being led by Phil Bourne, who's a relatively newly appointed associate director for data science. And the intent there is to create an environment in which researchers can manage, deposit, share, use, analyze data and other outputs of research in real time, all of which have identifiers. And because it's real time, anyone who's in that environment and because there are identifiers can come in and also see what else is going on and begin to make earlier connections with their own work, whether that's serendipitous or whether it's um, a, it, done in the way of a more structured kind of search to get to that material. So this is the beginnings of a truly digital ecosystem that supports open research at large. Um, and it also introduces great flexibility. So there are some researchers who need access to really high performance computing capabilities. Others have much simpler requirements. Uh, NIH gains from efficiencies because they're creating this centralized service for their researchers. It means that those researchers are not going out and separately negotiating deals with private providers. 
Um, and it also means that NIH can aggregate together in this common environment public support for that kind of activity too. So there's a lot of activity in the U.S. around open access and open data. GreenOA is here to stay and growing. And the NIH is investing in a big way, $1.2 billion big, in open data. And that's just the NIH. Liz also talked a bit about the NSF, which has been very clear about wishing to support data initiatives. They seem to be leaving it up more to subject communities to determine how quickly the discipline should move toward an open data environment. What they are doing is supporting infrastructure. One of the pieces of infrastructure they've supported that some of you will know is a Dryad digital repository, which archives and hosts long-term orphan and long-tail data that's often associated with the kind of publications that we're all associated with here. That's enabled us at Wiley to get more than, from just one journal, more than a thousand data sets into the public domain in three years. It's allowed people like our partners at the British Ecological Society by providing a mechanism to take a real leadership position in what journals can do to aid getting data into the public environment. You're probably getting the sense by now that there are a lot of different open access and open data policies out there. Ironically, the drive to make research more accessible and transparent is making the process of publishing research more confusing. One of the most confusing places in the world is the European Union, where the number of different OA funder policies is over 450 and growing almost daily. This makes life very difficult for researchers. Here's Liz explaining why. They need to figure out which mandates they should be following, whose they should be, how many co-authors do I have to take into account, and what kind of funding mandates do they have around what they need to do with their work. And then just to make life really simple, we as publishers come in and put journal mandates on top of that as well. Now, most of those are, of course, in accordance with, broadly speaking, these guidelines, but it just gives multiple checkpoints and multiple points of difficulty to researchers at the point that they're ready to share their research, which is what we all, of course, want them to do. Now, open access has been around in this environment. It feels like forever, but actually it's not that long. So the Wellcome Trust was a strong and early supporter of OA, um, and they stated very clearly and very early on that uh, the costs of open access dissemination of research was a core cost of publishing. They've more recently banded together with five other charities to create the Charities Open Access Fund. And last year, those organizations were responsible for publishing about 3,000 papers, open access, broadly speaking. We also had, uh, shortly after the Finch report in 2012, and that really does seem very recent indeed, um, RCUK taking a strong lead on applying gold across the UK. Um, I don't intend to go into all of the history of that. There's a lot of it. Many of you will know it. Um, but a report at the end of last year monitoring the impact of OA in the UK showed that in that short time frame, UK researchers now publish twice as frequently as the global average open access in hybrid journals, and that APCs are now accountable for 12% of university spend on journals. So it's having a real and significant impact here in the UK. Now, other bits of Europe tend to be a mix of green and gold, and generally speaking, it's gold in the north and it's green in the south. Um, Germany and Austria give us some good examples of gold with policies from, and support, often for full gold only, from the DFG, from FWF, and from Max Planck. Further south, there are more repositories. And I heard last night there may be an interesting peer review overlay project going on in Spain across some of their institutional repositories. 
And this is what I mean by how fast this is moving. You know, there's stuff coming through just last night still. And then the Dutch government gave us a bit of a shift rather recently. The Dutch government made it a condition for all or major research universities in the Netherlands when renegotiating deals with publishers or negotiating new deals that the transition to open access for Dutch research by 2024 must be a part of those deals. Otherwise, they couldn't be done. And the Dutch aren't stopping at open access at all. They are making open science a major priority um, for their activities over the coming years and for their presidency of the EU over the next six months. And there was just at the beginning of this month a meeting organized by the Dutch um, in Amsterdam to start to embed that across the EU. Now, we've been talking here about the impact of societies a little bit. This meeting was full of policymakers, full of funders. There was a good sprinkling of publishers of librarians. I'm really struggling to recall if I saw any societies there, and I didn't see many individual researchers either. But there were a few key points to emerge from that meeting, and the whole purpose of it was to move from statement to action. So the first one of these, and the, there was a draft document which has now been refined, is that all uh, research content from within the EU should be available open access by 2020. That's really soon really, really soon, and it's a challenging aspiration, especially given the mix of what we've seen happening across the globe. The second is that we need a fundamentally new research for data, uh, sorry, a fundamentally new approach to data, and that sharing should become the new default. Now, within that context, there are a couple of policies that were, rec or policy areas that were recognized as critical to making both of those things happen. I'm gonna take them in reverse order, because I think my second one is, is the more interesting, or their second one is the more interesting of the two. So firstly, they recognize that policies have to come into alignment. Terrific, let's try and align 454 policies. They clearly need trimming just a bit to bring down into something more manageable and intelligible to, to the average researcher in the lab. The second thing, and this is by far the most interesting to me, is that there needs to be new mechanisms of researcher evaluation reward. Now, this is where the fundamental game-changing piece comes into play for me. Um, until researcher behaviors change and until there's true motivation to move towards a future for open research, there isn't going to be that real groundswell shift. There'll be a big, strong interest. There'll be you know, increasing moves to an open research environment, but it'll be slow. So making sure, in the Dutch words, that um, knowledge creation is properly rewarded and impact in all its forms and not impact factor are rewarded becomes critical. Liz is right. Open access and open data policies can make change from the top down. But change also needs to come from the bottom up through new ways of rewarding researchers themselves for sharing more information and knowledge. Open access, open data, and open researcher recognition and reward are three very important aspects of open science, because it's in these three areas where the values of publishers, societies, and the communities that we serve intersect. We can all agree that the more people that have access to the insights and discoveries in scholarly and scientific research, the greater the impact of that research will be. As we just learned though, there's still a lot of work to be done. Open science should make it easier to communicate research, not more difficult. And societies and publishers need to work together to make sure things like open access and open data policies don't make life more difficult for researchers just hoping to make their work available to the world. 
We'll be talking much more about open science in future episodes, so stay tuned. The Wiley Society Update Podcast is a production of Wiley Society Services Program. At Wiley, we're helping societies spread knowledge, advance their disciplines, and expand their communities by working with them to extend the reach, impact, quality, and sustainability of their publishing programs. Our theme music was provided by Jason Shaw and editing by Dennis Velasco. The Wiley Society Executive Seminar, where Liz delivered her remarks, was designed with support from Rachel Smith, Rosie Hutchinson, Vicki Johnson, Ben Honor, Joe Whitson, and Davina Quarterman. The show's producer is Anna Ayler. Our editorial advisory group includes Andy Robinson, Sarah Phibbs, David Nicholson, Mark Robertson, and Nielsen Turner. You can listen to previous episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society Updates podcast in iTunes. You can also sign up for our mailing list to learn more about Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing by going to exchanges.wiley.com societies. Until next time, I'm Bill Deloise. Thanks for listening.